0: Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. At booksandnachos.com, you can find over 100 reviews, from fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels and more. There's also links to our forums, our Facebook and Twitter pages, and information about our Podbean crowdfunding campaigns. At booksandnachos.com, we're here to find you something great to read.
1: Johnny felt the familiar, compact coldness come over him. The trance feeling. The sensation that nothing mattered except to know. He even smiled a little, but it wasn't his smile. He put his hand out, and Stilson seized it in both of his and began to pump it up and down. Hey man, hope you're going to support us in... Then Stilson broke off, the way Eileen Magon had... The way Dr. James, just like the soul singer Brown, had. The way Roger Desault had. His eyes went wide, and then they filled with... Fright? No, it wasn't terror in Stilson's eyes. The moment was endless. Objective time was replaced by something else. A perfect cameo of time as they stared into each other's eyes. For Johnny, it was like being in that dull chrome corridor again. Only this time Stilson was with him, and they were sharing... Sharing... Everything. For Johnny, it had never been this strong. Never. Everything came at him at once, crammed together and screaming like some terrible black freight train highballing through a narrow tunnel. A speeding engine with a single glaring headlamp mounted up front, and the headlamp was knowing everything, and its light impaled Johnny Smith like a bug on a pin. There was nowhere to run, and perfect knowledge ran him down, plastered him as flat as a sheet of paper while that night-running train raced over him. He felt like screaming, but had no taste for it, no voice for it. The one image he never escaped as the blue filter began to creep in was Greg Stilson taking the oath of office. It was being administered by an old man with the humble, frightened eyes of a field mouse trapped by a terribly proficient battle-scarred tiger, Barnyard Tomcat. One of Stilson's hands clapped over a Bible, one upraised. It was years in the future because Stilson had lost most of his hair. The old man was speaking. Stilson was following. Stilson was saying... The blue filter is deepening, covering things, blotting them out bit by bit. Merciful blue filter, Stilson's face is behind the blue, and the yellow, the yellow like tiger stripes. He would do it, so help him God. His face was solemn, grim even, but a great hot joy clapped in his chest and roared in his brain. Because the man with the scared field mouse eyes was the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, and, oh dear God, the filter, the filter, the blue filter, the yellow stripes... Now all of it began to disappear slowly behind that blue filter. Except it wasn't a filter. It was something real. It was in the future, in the Dead Zone. Something in the future. His, Stilson's Johnny didn't know. Hello once again, Books and Nachos listeners. I'm Arnie, your host, and no, I've not fallen into the Dead Zone for good. I'm back and excited to be here talking with you about more of Stephen King's writings. I'm even more excited that today I'm reviewing The Dead Zone, This is a book I read in the early 1990s when I was in high school, a member of the Stephen King book club, getting a new novel a month and trying to keep up with that release schedule by reading all the King stories I'd missed. But even then I knew the story of The Dead Zone. I'd seen the Christopher Walken film before I was a teenager and several times after on video and television. That film was a fairly faithful adaptation of King's novel, so the book bore few surprises for me even then in the 90s but I'm glad to be able to return to the source material, having again reviewed the film on now playing, and having been a fan of Anthony Michael Hall's Dead Zone TV series. Finally now, I will get to focus on this book for the story King originally wanted to tell. Little history, The Dead Zone was King's seventh published novel, his fifth under his own name, with the other two being Richard Bachman books. It was also the last King novel of the 1970s, coming out in August of 1979, just one month after Bachman's book The Long Walk. In many ways, I feel The Dead Zone marks a new start for King, the start of a new era. Until this point, all through the 70s and ending with The Stand, we had King, the up-and-coming writer. Starting with Dead Zone, the author starts his second career phase, one where he would become the king of horror. These changes aren't just in terms of King's ability to sell books based on his name alone, but his writing style, his building a shared universe where his novels take place. Even behind-the-scenes business all conspired to make King THE literary powerhouse of the 1980s. But all of this follows a pretty complex timeline. King is not an author who writes one book at a time. He's described his process as writing one book in the morning, editing and rewriting another in the evening. He would also put one aside if he hit a block, and then start or resume working on another. I think it's safe to say we, as readers, think of King's fiction in terms of publication date. Carey was his 1974 novel. The Stand was 1978, Dead Zone 1979. I know that's how I'm following King's writing career here at Books and Nachos, but behind the scenes it gets stickier. King worked on this novel for years in various stages. The roots of the Dead Zone can be traced back to 1975. Carry had just been published in paperback, Salem's Lot was published in hardcover, and King was living in Colorado, writing what would be called The Shining. In the summer of 75, King and his family moved back to his home state of Maine, this time in Bridgeton. There, he finished The Shining, continued working on The Stand, wrote a number of short stories that would be printed in Night Shift, and started several other novels. Two would never be finished, called The Corner and Welcome to Clearwater. But during this time, he also started Pet Cemetery. Firestarter, and The Dead Zone. That last novel, the one I'm reviewing today, had its origin in several places. King has talked about the genesis of Dead Zone many times over the years, and it seems that, as often happens with King books, a confluence of disparate elements came together to create classic fiction. First, even though King started writing The Dead Zone in 1975, he was already looking to break away from horror. Carrie was out, Salem's Lot soon to follow, The Shining was nearly complete and The Stand was looming large, with those four novels King feared being pigeonholed as a horror writer. More, Burton Hatlin, a professor at King's alma mater, University of Maine, had kept in contact with the author, and in interviews he recalled King stating The Stand was King's last effort to really make it as a serious writer. Per Hatlin, King was frustrated in 1978 when The Stand was released and not considered great American literature. Hatlin recalled a conversation with King where the author said he'd just become a, quote, trash writer, unquote, after The Stand. He'd give up pursuit of being a man of letters and resign himself to writing what he called entertainments. His focus, per Hatlin, changed on writing bestsellers versus writing acclaimed award-winning novels. Indeed, starting with The Dead Zone, King's fiction did change. The Stand was King's last mainstream, sprawling, epic novel for nearly a decade. Other than perhaps the Dark Tower series, King would shy away from the large ensemble stories he told with Salem's Lot in The Stand, and instead focus on fast-paced stories featuring a small cast of characters. The Dead Zone, Firestarter, Pet Sematary, Christine, Cujo, Misery, and even IT all focus on a family or small group of people dealing with evil. It isn't really until the Tommyknockers in 1987 that King would return to a sprawling cast. And it's during this phase that King solidified his reputation as an author who churned out stories about one evil thing. These high-concept conceits that made for easily digested fiction. Dead Zone, a psychic tries to save the world. Firestarter, a pyrokinetic girl tries to escape a shadowy government agency. Christine, the car is evil and tries to kill people. And so on and so on. This age may also be defined by King's alcoholism and drug use. In the 70s, he was drinking heavily, and by the early 80s, he'd added cocaine to the mix, feeling he needed both to stay an effective, best-selling author. This age of King does end with his sobriety. But we have 16 novels and several short story collections before we get to that point. But these stories, from 1979 to 1987, and yes, most of them are horror stories, define for me the second age of King. And per Hatlin, this was a conscious choice by the author. That said, let me play devil's advocate. When the author put pen to paper and started Dead Zone, he didn't realize The Stand wouldn't be immediately adopted as required reading by high school English classes. More, the author always tried to push himself. Many of his novels in this phase were personal creative writing challenges, including The Dead Zone, as I'll discuss. And, as I already said... With Dead Zone, King was already challenging himself to write a non-horror novel. Now, if you've been following me here at Books and Nachos, you know that by this point, King had written stories in many genres, not just horror. And even under his own name, I'm not even including the two Bachman books. Several dramatic and science fiction pieces were collected in Night Shift, as well as other magazines. And I would personally argue how much horror was in the stand versus sci-fi and fantasy. But yet... On the other side, Night Shift was laced with horror of all types, and King wanted to work outside just one genre. And I mentioned the timeline to point out that this was not reactionary. King had only one published novel when he put pen to paper for The Dead Zone, so it was anticipatory. But King was right. The title, The King of Horror, is one he'll never escape. But in that regard, The Dead Zone simply continues a recurring theme of King's books. It's easy to forget because of De Palma's iconic film, but the novel Carrie is about a girl who gets all sorts of psychic powers, not just the ability to move objects. She can read minds and start fires. Danny Torrance in The Shining was also psychic, communicating with spirits and seeing the future long before reaching that overlook hotel. And finally, in The Stand, many of the characters have psychic visions that pull them towards their destinies. So here with The Dead Zone, yet another story of a psychic phenomenon, King seems to be revisiting material he's done several times before. But despite the recurring theme, I think The Dead Zone doesn't fall into the realm of horror. This book is at most supernatural suspense, or possibly even drama. The story is one that could take place entirely in ordinary everyday life, except the hero of this novel happens to gain ESP. But no towns are destroyed, no ghosts appear... No demons from hell that turn into crows. And King himself considers the novel to be science fiction, as it contains a psychic, not a monster. He applies that same label to Carrie, which similarly happened in an everyday town until one person gained psychic powers. But per Douglas E. Winter, a writer who interviewed King during this period, the author was depressed. Of course, he had just lost his mother in late 1973, which King admitted caused a great deal of upset. But King was also having trouble digging into a book after The Stand. He'd alternately write Pet Cemetery, Dead Zone, Firestarter, and others, but he couldn't get a grip on what his first post-Stand novel should be. The author was so frustrated, he actually moved to England for a time in 1977, hoping to tap into a history of gothic horror from that area. Yet nothing came, other than the bare beginnings of Cujo, so King moved back to Maine later that same year. And during that time, King found he'd hit yet another block with the Dead Zone, and he put it in a drawer to return to later, and King started working heavily on Firestarter. Only when he realized Firestarter was just going to reinforce his rep as a horror novelist did he return to the Dead Zone, which he considers to be a love story. As an aside, I'd consider Firestarter to be far more science fiction-y than Dead Zone, but we'll get to that in time. King was equally upset with his publisher Doubleday. I detailed that strife in my review of The Stand, King's last novel for the publisher. In addition to being upset with mandated cuts to that novel to reduce printing costs, King also thought The Stand was not properly marketed and felt undervalued with the payment structure Doubleday offered. For his first five books, King's advances totaled $77,500, an average of under $16,000 per book, and he was only releasing one book a year. Far more money was made on the paperback rights, but Doubleday's contract earned them half of that money. Further, the royalties on King's book sales were being held in escrow by Doubleday, as their contract maximized the payout at $50,000 per year. But at a literary party, King met Kirby McCauley, who would become King's first agent. Up until this point, King had worked directly with the magazine and book publishers, and he was distrustful of agents. But Macaulay shopped around several of King's short stories to magazines, as a way for the author to become comfortable with the process. Many of those stories were later collected in Night Shift and other anthologies. With those successes, King trusted Macaulay to represent him when the author's multi-book deal with Doubleday was ending. If you want the nitty-gritty specifics, go back to my review of The Stand where I detail it there. But in short, after harsh negotiations, Macaulay and King decided to leave Doubleday and their offer of a $3 million upfront and instead go to paperback publisher New American Library who had only been printing King's work written under the Bachman name. While the author took less up front, only $2.5 million, King thought the New American marketed the novels better, printed them nicer, and provided more fair royalty payments. But the New American Library only did paperback printings, so they then worked with various hardcover publishers for the initial runs of King's novels. But now, this isn't a podcast about the business of book publishing. It's about King's written works. But all of this personal and professional strife helped shape King's next two books. The author said he wasn't trying to make great art, but simply, as he told Hatlin, entertainments. And those two books are The Dead Zone and Firestarter. And that first book's what we're discussing today. In short, the plot is about a man named John Smith, who gains strong psychic powers after emerging from a four-year coma. This foresight allows him to catch a serial killer and save some teenagers from a fire, But the biggest challenge comes when the man meets a politician with a particularly dark destiny. In a vision, he sees a political candidate who will do horrible things. This man, Greg Stilson, may possibly even start a nuclear war. So Smith sets out to save the world by assassinating Stilson. Despite his desire to stray from his usual genre, this novel still has horrific elements from King's original concept of telling a story about a man who would become a murderer. King's inspiration for the novel came from a personal challenge. Much as Carey was written because King was told he couldn't write a book about women, The Dead Zone was King's challenge to himself, which he revealed in his 2000 nonfiction writing guide, On Writing. Quote, My novel, The Dead Zone, arose from two questions. Can a political assassin ever be right? And if he is, could you make him the protagonist of a novel? The good guy. End quote. Indeed, to do that would be a feat, When he started the book in 1975, political assassinations would have been fresh in his mind. Of course, the obvious one is John F. Kennedy's death in 63, but there was also Bobby Kennedy in 68 and Congressman Leon Jordan in 70. This would become even more topical while King was writing the book, as a California congressman was killed at Jonestown, and two San Francisco politicians, one of whom was Harvey Milk, were murdered by a former employee. So King was entering a sticky topic— albeit not one new to him. He had once written the sympathetic tale of a gunman in Rage. For years, King was unrepentant about his story of an active shooter taking a high school classroom hostage. Now he was revisiting the idea of a sympathetic killer, not one who's crazy, but one who's noble. Or at least, that's what King wanted the reader to think. And the plot of The Dead Zone is far from that of Rage. After all, Rage was about a disaffected teen holding a classroom hostage, Dead Zone's gunman is given a far more noble cause. He's not trying to kill Kennedy or Carter or even someone as controversial as Nixon. No, The Dead Zone is a story extrapolation of the old would-you-go-back-in-time-and-kill-Hitler trope. It's an obvious analogy King is setting up, and he even calls out the question verbatim as a point of discussion in the novel. But The Dead Zone isn't a book about time travel and Hitler, but about a protagonist with psychic powers who can see the future. So rather than travel through time to stop a mad leader, in The Dead Zone, our hero has the ability to kill the man before he ever commits the deeds in the first place. To pull this off, King knew he needed to change his writing style. Instead of his usual instinctive freeform storytelling, he needed to have a strong plot, something he's usually against. He'd later discuss this in On Writing, saying he doesn't like plotted stories. He wrote, quote, Plot is, I think the good writer's last resort, and the dullard's first choice. The story which results from it is apt to feel artificial and labored." Quote. A damning statement indeed. If you've heard my earlier King reviews, you know his style is far less structured. He has ideas. A plague wipes out the earth. A haunted hotel drives a man insane. Dracula comes to Maine. He then creates characters and begins writing. He's often said the characters choose their own actions. He doesn't direct them what to do except for his own intuition, and the result is gripping narratives with three-dimensional characters that, in King's mind, choose their own destiny. But despite this, King has written plotted novels. Yet he says in on writing, quote, "...the results in books like Insomnia and Rosemata have not been particularly inspiring. These are, much as I hate to admit it, stiff, trying-too-hard novels." King's a little kinder to themes. In that guide, he wrote, "...writing in literature classes can be annoyingly preoccupied by and pretentious about theme, approaching it as the most sacred of sacred cows." But, he concludes, "...good fiction always begins with story and progresses to theme. It almost never begins with theme and progresses to story." But while he calls out all those as pitfalls for fiction writers... In on writing, he calls out this book as an exception to that rule. Quote, The only plot-driven novel of mine which I really like is The Dead Zone. And in all fairness, I must say I like that one a great deal. End quote. He felt that way even when the book was released. He said in an interview, quote, The best I've done so far is The Dead Zone because it's a real novel. It's very complex. There's an actual story. Most of my fictions are simply situations that are allowed to develop themselves. "...that one has a nice layered texture, a thematic structure that underlies it, and it works on most levels." End quote. He claimed at the time the book's thematic elements came together in the book's first rewrite, and that revision, with a single unifying idea in mind, made this into what he called a thoughtful novel. But King was trying a new technique, plotting the Dead Zone to also take a certain amount of time to have milestone events... And all to convince you, his constant reader, that a would-be political assassin named Johnny Smith is our hero, and his target, an anti-establishment congressman from New Hampshire, is the villain. In that way, this is another start of what I deem the second age of King Fiction. The author himself said in an interview, quote, This is the first real novel I wrote. Up until then, the others were just exercises. That's a real novel with real characters. A real big plot and subplots. End quote. Still, it seems there was one more thing King wanted to include in this novel, a reflection on the 1970s from his own point of view. Other than a brief prologue, this novel begins in 1970 and ends in 1979, King writing the later years before they actually happened. Political and social events are discussed, even when there's really no need for them to be mentioned. In some ways, it feels The Dead Zone is set against the backdrop of the 1970s, in other ways, it almost seems to be a memoir by King of the major events of that decade. Talking about that, King said, quote, I wanted to talk about the 70s with the Dead Zone, but I didn't want to hit anybody over the head with it. So I thought, I'll do a Rip Van Winkle thing, and we can see the 70s pass before us like a newsreel. End quote. But King's stories often come from a mashup of separate ideas, and this one is no different. The concept of a 70s retrospective collided with another idea King was musing. What if an ordinary guy could actually see the future he had a scene in mind of a teacher telling a student you've got to go home right away your house is burning down a scene very similar to that is in this final novel and yes our protagonist's name is john smith that screams he is intended to be that ordinary guy i mean what is more generic an american name than john smith and this john smith doesn't even have a middle name nor a suffix smith's career is equally innocuous He's an English teacher at the high school in Cleves Mills, Maine. Not only is teacher a fairly common profession, it's becoming downright abundant in King fiction. From The Shining to Salem's Lot to Sometimes They Come Back, King continues to make his leading males teachers or writers, or both as King himself was in the early and mid-70s. While some of these characters do feel like fictionalized versions of King himself, being an English teacher or a writer does not immediately make that so. There's too long a history of characters who share his own profession for any literary deconstructionist such as myself to make that claim. But in Smith's case, I'm going to make an exception and call out it leaps off the pages, at least in the early chapters, that King has cast himself in this book's lead role. This isn't something the author would probably like me saying. In all the interviews and memoirs I've read, King doesn't speak of those similarities, Halton did, however, recalling once telling King he saw The Dead Zone as autobiographical, and King responded in anger. It is possible that the author didn't realize how much of himself was being put into the book, or maybe he knew but didn't want to be too transparent about it. I can only speculate. But in reading this novel, it seems obvious to me that John Smith is just a very generic pseudonym, a slight fictionalization of Stephen King the author. For example... Smith's name easily blends in with thousands of others, but his looks do not. In 1970, when this book begins, King describes him as, quote, "...a tall man who had a tendency to slouch, and the kids called him Frankenstein." And the physical appearance is something that struck me as odd. If you've seen pictures of King during this period, standing 6'4 with his large frame, I could see Frankenstein as a nickname. And, like Johnny, King's sense of humor may take that as a compliment but that only makes him physically similar to the author. But there are several other traits as well. Smith is very politically aware, as is King. In the 60s, Smith was an activist, anti-war, and certainly leaning towards the left side of politics. This not only mirrors the author, but King uses this as a way for his lead to interject natural conversation about political climates, a way of inserting historical fact without being too obvious. But again, all things we can ascribe to the author as well. Other facts are shared by Smith and King, both were born in 1947, both attended the University of Maine at Arono, class of 1970, and both of them rose to nationwide fame, or at least notoriety, in the 70s. The spotlight shined upon them at about the same time as their mother's death, and I'll certainly talk of the consequences of their fame a bit later in this review. Do you need more convincing? You'll get it very early in the book. In the first chapter, we're introduced to Johnny through the eyes of his girlfriend and fellow high school teacher, Sarah Bracknell. In third-person prose with a strict character point of view, we accompany Sarah as she enters Johnny's apartment for a date to the local county fair. She walks in, and he isn't seen, but he makes an entrance that feels very much like our king of horror. Johnny hides in a dark room wearing a Halloween mask, and he jumps out to scare her as a lark before their date. This kind of teasing continues throughout the evening. He needles Sarah, describing horrible deaths at the hands of carnival rides. These are the types of jokes and tricks, the general sense of humor, King seemed to exhibit as a young author, playing up to his horrific reputation for fans and reporters alike. So it's really very difficult to not see The Dead Zone as King's own reflection on the 1970s. Several real-world people, brands, movies, and more set the period of each passing year, and some famous names even cameo, making this book feel a little bit like an early version of Forrest Gump. But King does keep this a plot-driven novel spanning ten years, finding an entertaining narrative to tie it together. And clearly Smith undergoes things King does not. King is a gifted writer, but I don't believe he's psychic. But yet, the book does feel like King asking himself, If I were psychic, How would I respond? To get beyond the author and really look at his character, John Smith, the character building begins on this first date with Sarah. The mask Johnny wore was more than just a character flourish. Again, this is King stretching his writing, and with the plotting comes foreshadowing and symbolism. Johnny's mask is a Jekyll and Hyde mask, half a normal face and the other half a monster with sharp teeth. Sarah thinks of this mask often throughout the book. From his first introduction... King is telling us Johnny is a dichotomy. The perennial nice guy and joker that regularly teases Sarah about a non existent cocaine addiction, and she repeatedly calls him, same old Johnny. But then there is also a monstrous cold side to the man. From these first pages, King is trying to look inside the life of an assassin or murderer. An everyday man who holds a job, has a family, and the neighbors all say what a nice guy he was, but someone who also had another side that led them to attempt murder. In these early passages, is King foreshadowing Johnny's future, or telling us who he is at the start, a monster who is well disguised as a man? That's up for debate, but as Johnny is intended as our hero, I lean towards the former, even though we also see glimpses of the latter. The unease Sarah felt at Johnny's mask, the disquiet, sits with her for most of the novel, at least ten years, but the mask isn't the only sign of another Johnny that night. For most of the evening, Johnny is, as Sarah repeatedly says, same old Johnny, polite, considerate, and in love with Sarah. Sarah was even planning that night to be the first time the two slept together, a decision made by the good time she was having. But that night took an unexpected turn as the fair was shutting down. On the way out, Johnny and Sarah stop at a gambling booth, the Wheel of Fortune. Oh yes, the symbolism is getting thick, isn't it kids? Johnny stops to bet, and he wins big. See, here's one of the twists to the story. The Dead Zone doesn't tell of a man who went into a coma and woke up a psychic. For reasons I can't quite gather, this is a story about a little boy who fell hard on some ice in 1953. As told in the prologue, six-year-old Johnny Smith was skating and took a fall, cracking his head hard. When he woke up, he had his first psychic vision. A man jumping his car battery and it exploding. Johnny would eventually forget the accident, but after that point... Throughout his life, he would occasionally have a preternatural sense of intuition about things. He could find lost objects. Guess what song was coming on the radio? Or, on this night, he was able to win big at the Wheel of Fortune. White King chose to have two accidents happen to John. The first, when he was a boy, giving him mental powers, and then another as an adult amplifying those powers, is something I question. First, if you look at books like The Shining or Carrie, King never felt the need to explain the origins of the powers in those books. Yet, here he gives two. Wouldn't one be enough? Well, there is an explanation for that. It serves to bring Johnny again closer to the author. The head injury on the ice actually happened to King. He spoke about it in an interview and said, The beginning of The Dead Zone, where Johnny Smith falls down and hit his head on the ice, that happened to me. It's one of the earliest things I can remember. Being hit by a hockey player, knocked out, and coming to about five minutes later. Probably no more than four years old. It's one of those things you grab hold of and put in a book because it fits." To that, I must respectfully disagree. It doesn't fit. It may be something worth putting in a book, but two head injuries? Well, there may be another reason that applies to the plot King developed. Johnny needed to be slightly psychic this night so he could run the wheel. He doesn't seem to do it intentionally, he doesn't use the force and stretch out with his feelings. He just seems to be overcome by it. Yet when this happens, Johnny's personality is gone. Jekyll becomes Hyde. Sarah, who is getting violently ill from a bad hot dog, is almost ignored as Johnny focuses on the wheel in one more bet. One more bet. Sarah thinks of Johnny with such words as composed and mannequin-like. King writes, quote, "...Johnny stood calmly watching the wheel, and now it seemed to her, although it might have been the sickness which was now rolling through her belly in gripping, peristaltic waves, that his eyes were almost black. Jekyll and Hyde, she thought, and was suddenly, senselessly afraid of him." End quote. Yeah, from our first chapter, our hero has a dark side, one only his girlfriend can sense, and even she writes it off after the fact. But as I mentioned, the symbolism was heavy with the Wheel of Fortune... And that gaming device is a metaphor King would come back to again and again in this novel. John wins big at the gaming table, but that's where his luck ends. In a domino effect, Johnny would end this October 1970 evening, not in Sarah's bed, but in a coma. The first domino was taking Sarah to the fair, where she ate a hot dog, which made her horribly ill. That put a damper on the evening, and the thoughts of the post-fair coital festivities were put on hold. Johnny drives Sarah home in her car and calls himself a cab to go back to his apartment. The wheel of fortune turns, and the cab collides head-on with some drag-racing kids. The cabbie is killed, and John is thrown free to begin over four years of comatose slumber. So by page 70 of this almost 600-page novel, at least in the paperback I have, Johnny is out of the picture. King successfully made us like this guy in those pages. He was affable, conversational, and polite even to cabbies who don't share his worldview. Plus, his psychic powers are a hook. What does it mean for his future? Well, we're going to have to wait 73 pages to find out. Indeed, King spends marginally longer in this book with our main character, Comatose, than he did introducing us to Johnny before the accident. This is where King makes his second creative choice that I have to question. I may be tainted by having seen how Johnny's coma plays out on the Dead Zone movie and TV series, but I'm trying to put myself in the mindset of a reader in 1979. I may know this story is about a psychic, but I probably wouldn't know too much about the plot. I would think, in terms of drama and in terms of pacing, it would just be shocking for the reader and protagonist alike if Johnny falls into a coma on page 68, and on page 69 he's waking up from his four-year Rip Van Winkle. Because when Johnny does come back, as the TV show opening monologue states, everything has changed. His mother has descended into a religious mania. His family is nearly impoverished due to the medical bills. Perhaps most importantly, his girlfriend Sarah will be married to another man. Up until this point in the novel, Johnny's only motivation has been his pursuit of the woman he truly loves. It's not his parents, his job, or his own love of life that John Smith wakes up for. It's Sarah. She is the thing that makes him choose in his comatose state to go towards wakefulness and not death. The entire scene is dramatized by King's prose, with Johnny making a conscious decision, no pun intended. It's a very interesting passage that goes on for a while with him choosing the darkness or the light, but he does think he's only been out for a few days. Couldn't the story have been more interesting if we hadn't followed the four years hence, hadn't seen everything that went on while he slumbered? Then we'd be surprised like Johnny. We'd experience the shock that he experienced in the disappointment. I mean, of course, this was all spoiled for me because I saw the movie long before I read the book, But nonetheless, it could have been a more gripping narrative. Both adaptations, TV and film, chose to do it that way. And I think they got it right. But that's not the book King wanted to write. Remember, this isn't just the tale of a psychic. This is a look back on the 1970s. As King himself went from young adult to the first stages of middle age, so does the character. And so, with that goal in mind, skipping four years of history isn't an option. Could the story have been told differently? Sure. The obvious answer is the coma could have been shorter. Looking at John Smith, a man who had a severe head injury, went into a coma, and emerged a psychic, I feel it's obvious that King's inspiration had to be Peter Herkos, a real-world psychic who rose to fame in the 60s and 70s. Herkos fell four stories off a ladder. The result was a massive head injury and a coma. When he woke, he claimed to have psychic powers. And again, this is all true. Herkos went on to assist many police departments in investigations, including participating in the case of the Boston Strangler, a series of murders eerily close to one Johnny himself will work on in this novel. But Herkos's real-life coma lasted only three days. King puts Smith's at four and a half years. Now, if I want to really get into King's head about this, I could look for parallels from the author's real life. From 1970 to 1974, King was a struggling writer, having novel after novel rejected. He and his wife Tabitha were struggling to pay the bills and feed their children. More, the author's mother was terminally ill, causing King to move to southern Maine to care for her. she died shortly after. It wasn't until Carrie was published in 1974, and really until Carrie's paperback rights were sold, that King was able to become a full-time writer and support his family. Perhaps this dark period of King's life could be seen as a metaphorical coma. Another, though, is that while John Smith is our primary character, he's certainly not our only one. In this novel is Greg Stilson, the politician who, in the final quarter of this novel, Johnny thinks will bring about a nuclear war. If you know nothing of the Dead Zone when you pick up the book, King's writing makes it obvious that Stilson is an important person. Chapter after chapter is devoted to the man, and he even gets his own section alongside Johnny's in the book's prologue. Yet for all the ink King spills on him, a new reader has to cover over 450 pages to find out why. A passive reader would simply absorb all this information about Stilson, learning about the man's history and politics, before being shocked by Johnny's revelation. A more active reader would probably have to realize that Johnny and Stilson would come into conflict at some point in the novel. Otherwise, why are we spending so much time with him? Either way, King uses Johnny's coma as a chance to give us a chapter about Greg Stilson. I'm reluctant to call Stilson this book's antagonist. By strict definition, an antagonist is one who is actively trying to stop our protagonist from reaching his goal. Indeed, to go back to my very early English classes, I was told all stories could be broken down to man versus man, man versus nature, man versus self, or a combination of the above. When the Castle Rock Strangler story may be man versus man, the rest of this novel is very much man versus self, as Johnny must rest with his own powers and decide how best to act. Up until the novel's climax, Stilson remains totally unaware that John Smith even exists. He certainly does nothing to try and stop the psychic. So even though in On Writing, King calls Stilson this book's antagonist, I think it's incorrect. He's the book's villain, but he's not actively against our hero. But he is a very bad guy in the story. Remember, King wants to write a story that gets readers to root for a political assassin. As King wrote in on writing, quote, Ever since John F. Kennedy was shot in Dallas, the great American boogeyman has been the guy with a rifle in a high place. I wanted to make this guy into the reader's friend. End quote. In service of that agenda, King had to give us a man so horribly evil, so dangerous, that killing him seems justified even logical. Now, I don't think that would be a hard thing for King to do. In the 70s, vigilante killers were popular. Charles Bronson in Death Wish, and most of Bronson's other notable films. Clint Eastwood's Dirty Harry, and many more heroes were becoming victorious by putting a bullet in the bad guy. But King took no chances. As I mentioned, Stilson got his own scene in the book's prologue. His section immediately follows the tale of little Johnny Smith falling on the ice. So while we may not know why we're reading about this man, it's obvious he's vital to the story. And in this first section, we see Stilson in 1955, two years after Johnny's fall. He's a door-to-door Bible salesman, profiting on cut-rate, cheaply printed scriptures, and profiting even more on a paperback proclaiming a communist Jewish conspiracy against the United States. Not enough? The first thing we read Stilson doing is spraying a dog with ammonia and then kicking it to death. King claims this opening resulted in a deluge of letters from readers upset about what happened to the dog. They pointed their disgust at the author. But this fictional dog's fictional death happened at the literal feet of fictitious Greg Stilson. It's a recipe for immediate hatred of a character. It also establishes Stilson as a bit crazy. The son of an abusive father, the memories of which bring about shades of The Shining... Greg Stilson suffers from headaches, and those pains often accompany bursts of uncontrollable violence. Against people, against animals, he can't control it. If that's not madness enough, the man has delusions of grandeur. In the prologue, it's put forth that Greg believes he's destined for greatness, and nothing less. As King writes, quote, "...and God and Sonny and Jesus help anyone that got in his way." End quote. So while Johnny sleeps, we visit Stilson in 1971, now a real estate agent and influential member of the Ridgway New Hampshire Town Council. He uses this power to blackmail biker gang leader Sonny Elliman into becoming the politician's own personal goon. But Stilson isn't the only villain we follow from 1970 to 75. No, as I mentioned, Johnny and Stilson don't come together until about 75% of the book has passed. Before the main event, Johnny has a series of other psychic episodes, each leading him to the conclusion. The most famous of these cases would be when Johnny assists the sheriff of Castle Rock, Maine in catching the Castle Rock Strangler. Very, very much like Hercos' investigation of the Boston Strangler. King doesn't want this to be a sudden, random turn of events. Remember, this book is plotted. So we visit Castle Rock, not once, but twice while our protagonist lies in a hospital bed. The first is in November 1970, where we join our mystery murderer for his first kill. We return on January 1st, 1975, where two boys find the body of another Strangler victim. Shades of a story King would revisit in his 1982 novella, The Body. And again, we read these sections of the book, not knowing how these murders in Castle Rock relate to our main character. But I do understand the principle of Chekhov's gun. King is foreshadowing future dangers, and we're going to have to wait to find out how they matter. But during these chapters, multiple, While Johnny is out of the picture, King seems to give us not Chekhov's gun, but Chekhov's kitchen sink. The single most extraneous of these scenes is in Chapter 5. It's only a few pages, but it's in the middle of these passages, where a lightning rod salesman goes to a bar called Kathy's Roadhouse. It's 1973, and the owner has no interest in buying what the man is selling, so the salesman leaves. Now I know from previous reads that Kathy's is going to get struck by lightning later in the book, an event Johnny will foretell but it's honestly eye-rolling to think that every single thing Johnny will do post-coma is so neatly set up while he was sleeping. I tried to extrapolate this scene. Is King trying to pay homage to Ray Bradbury? He has cited Something Wicked This Way Comes as a inspiration for some of his previous works, including How The Stand Ends. Was he calling to that by having a lightning rod salesman pretend danger? Perhaps. But nothing in the rest of this book ties to Bradbury's 60s tale, so it's out of place. And all of it honestly tries my patience. Even if King didn't want to go with the shocking johnny suddenly wakes up in years have passed" method, we spend far too much time here. Plots don't progress. They're introduced, but in seemingly random ways. They follow only the course of the calendar. Again, all of the scenes that take place here are really there so King can talk about what's happening in the country during those years, not for any plot or character-related purpose. I'm honestly more forgiving of this section upon rereading the novel, and I have read it four times total as of this recording. When you know all the links and how Johnny plays into these stories, it helps. A little. But much like the setup to Salem's Lot, I found myself wishing King would move it. He talked about how tightly plotted this narrative was, But here, the plot doesn't progress as much as it feels like King is showing off. Hey, look at all the foreshadowing I'm doing! I'm guessing he's hoping we're enamored with the two major storylines that progress in these years. Those of Johnny's parents and girlfriend. Johnny was the only child of Herb and Vera Smith. Herb is a down-to-earth carpenter. His wife, however, is a strongly religious woman, pressing her beliefs on all those around her. When Johnny is injured, Vera's mental state deteriorates. Her religious fixation becomes an outright obsession, recalling shades of Carrie's Margaret White. Vera never tries to lock anyone in a closet, but she does try to sneak behind Herb's back and sell their house so she can give money to religious cults. She begins going to retreats with groups who believe aliens will arrive to fly believers to heaven. We watch Vera become more and more crazy over these four years, while Herb becomes frustrated at his inability to control his wife's spending. They fight, and at times, Herb even wishes for his son just to die and bring an end to the suffering of the living. The biggest section here, though, is reserved for Sarah. Indeed, she carries the thread. King proclaimed the Dead Zone a love story, and so we focus, I suppose, on the couple, Sarah and Johnny, versus Johnny alone. At least for this section. While Johnny is obviously our lead character, much of these early chapters are told through Sarah's point of view. Even in chapter 1, as she prepares for that fateful date at the fair, we get page after page of Sarah remembering a bad college relationship and breakup. It's not endearing, honestly. That Sarah thinks so much of how she was hurt, and how she spends a year after the breakup douching instead of having sex, makes me wonder exactly if she's any good for Johnny. As much as King gets us to like Johnny, and convince us that Johnny loves Sarah, I have to give Sarah a side eye and wonder if she really reciprocates his feelings or if she just likes not being alone. After John's accident, we get to see Sarah replay that same pattern she did in college, avoiding relationships. Yet while it's ostensibly due to her attachment to Johnny, King never outwardly demonstrates her devotion to him. She doesn't date for her own reasons. She's not ready to date again, more than because she's holding out for Johnny to wake up. And it's somewhat tricky to follow King's timeline here, but I parsed it all out. Sarah waits eight months before she starts dating again, A law student named Walt Hazlitt is the lucky man. After four months of dating, she gets engaged, almost one year to the date of Johnny's accident. She's married nine months after that. Yes, King does show Sarah wavering on the engagement, visiting Johnny in the hospital and wondering if he'll return to her. But later in the book, after Johnny does wake up, Sarah confesses to him that even if she had known he would recover, she wouldn't have waited four years for him. Now I get it. They'd been dating a short time. They'd never even slept together. I'm not asking for Sarah to join a nunnery until John wakes up. But likewise, it doesn't sell me that this is a relationship tragically averted. From Johnny's point of view, the pain is understandable. They were in the early stages of love. That time where it feels so strong and energizing that you feel giddy 24-7. For him, an evening passed and he woke up. His feelings haven't had time to dull. For her, it's been over four years. She's married has a baby, born almost three years to the day after Johnny's accident, and he's the man who got away from her. Admittedly, I don't hate Sarah. I just feel she's a dichotomy, holding out for Johnny when she was never that into him. Worst, all this time spent with Sarah is King biding his time, and to a degree, wasting ours. Yes, when Johnny wakes up, he has unfinished business with Sarah, but soon after, she drops out of the novel almost entirely. She remains for Johnny a token of what he lost, but that doesn't keep her a full-fledged character. But finally, a quarter of the way into the novel, Johnny wakes up and the book blasts off. King spent 141 pages in my copy setting up the dominoes, and when Johnny wakes up, they're going to fall in a spectacular fashion. And I really want to credit King for doing his medical research. Once awoken, Johnny is not ready to jump up and return to his life. He's racked up a fortune in medical bills, his body is atrophied, his muscles shrunken up to the point that several painful surgeries are required to help him even walk again. It is during these medical trials Johnny undergoes, not his date night with Sarah in 1970, that I connected to the character. Everything in his life is gone. His health, his self-reliance, his job, his girl, even his ability to hold his own urine. Johnny perseveres through hard times, and King's characterization builds a respect for the man. We also watch as Johnny is reunited with his parents and able to use a soft touch with his mother's mania when she proclaims Johnny's resurrection a sign from God that he's destined for great things. Eventually, Sarah also returns for that painful reunion, where she must confess she left Johnny behind four years earlier. Oh yeah, and Johnny has to learn about Watergate, the end of Vietnam, and all the political happenings that enthralled the country during those four and a half years. Throughout this, we get to see how much Johnny changed with the accident. His previously latent psychic abilities have amplified greatly, and now there's a focus. Versus just getting flashes, Johnny is now psychometric, able to get visions by touching people or objects. Coincidentally, or not, that's the exact same type of psychic power possessed by Peter Herkos. For Johnny, these psychic visions overtake him, those scary eyes Sarah noted at the fair return and Johnny turns stiff, often babbling frightening things about what he's seeing. One detail that I love King including is that when Johnny touches people, they often can feel something too. One character reflects, quote, He had felt something. Something cold and dark and incomprehensible. Suddenly, he didn't want to touch Johnny. At that moment, he never wanted to touch Johnny again. It was as if he found out what it would be like to lie in his own coffin and watch the lid nailed down. End quote. It's a little flourish, but intriguing that the psychic bond affects the subject as well as the psychic. Of course, Johnny is kept in the hospital, a place of science, so any claims of psychic powers are met with suspicion. Johnny was under the care of two neurologists, one of whom believed in hard science. The other is more open-minded, especially after Johnny locates the man's mother, who was believed killed in Poland during World War II. This believer, Dr. Sam Wyzak, becomes Johnny's friend and confidant during his hospital stay. Wyzak is the doctor who admits that, for all they study, Science is still mostly ignorant about the subtle workings of the brain. This, along with some technobabble about the cerebrum within the parietal lobe of Johnny's brain, makes him open to the possibility that latent in the human mind is the ability for tremendous power. This could perhaps explain Carrie as well. Of Johnny's powers, Sam would say, quote, I believe that this man is now in possession of a very new human ability or a very old one. But for what Johnny can see, there's something else he can't. He does have a degree of brain damage, which makes him unable to mentally visualize certain objects, like a picnic table. Additionally, he has trouble seeing locations, such as street signs. It's a mental block caused by the trauma, and Johnny refers to these things he can't see as being in his dead zone. Yes, indeed, that is the origin of this book's title. It's ominous. It sounds like some kind of abattoir. Instead, It's an area of his brain where certain memories were stored that have been wiped out due to the damage. It's a strikingly vivid turn of phrase, and you might want to try to apply it to the climax of the story, but hardly frightening, as the title implies. In the hospital, Johnny has several flashes, including telling Sarah where she lost her wedding ring and assuring a nurse her son's surgery will go fine. But when he touches his physical therapist and sees her house on fire, that's when Johnny's privacy is gone. The house was, indeed, burning, and Johnny was in no condition to even leave the hospital, let alone set the blaze. Immediately, the press descends upon the man, and this begins a pattern of press coverage for Smith, with many reporters proclaiming him a fraud, attempting to profit off his accident. Others report factually what occurred and let the readers make up their own minds. The result is a massive amount of unwanted fame for John, and it comes at a bad time, for during John's press conference, his mother has a fatal stroke. On her deathbed, Vera, somewhat incoherent and unaware of her surroundings due to the brain damage, does seem to speak to Johnny, telling him that his power is a gift from God. She gives two quotes that haunt Johnny throughout the novel Not the potter, but the potter's clay, a reference to Jeremiah 18, an Old Testament biblical passage where God says that the people must follow his plan, not their own. And she says, Heed the still, small voice when it comes telling Johnny he'll know deep inside what God wills him to do, but he must listen and obey. King is often mocking of religion in his fiction. His stories are full of characters like Margaret White, Vera Smith, and many other crazy and mean people wielding religion as a weapon. While not entirely, King does seem to have a predilection of making them female as well. And indeed, at this point in his life, King stated he had no use for religion. But he was raised Methodist, and it's impossible not to see some biblical teachings reflected in the dead zone. After all, John Smith is quite an obvious Christ metaphor. He's the son of a carpenter. One could see his coma as death and resurrection. Now here he's being instructed to follow a calling from the Lord. He uses his powers to help people and, in the end, will give up his own life to save the lives of every man on earth. Indeed, the Christian imagery is thick here. While these passages with Vera do set John on a specific course that we'll see him undertake, often unwillingly as the novel progresses, it's also a touching scene. Johnny's frustration at a nurse who won't leave the patient and family alone, his feelings of helplessness seeing his mother invalid and near death, these all echo sentiments King has made about dealing with his own mother's death. It's like a shorthand version of the type of emotions he gave his main character in the Night Shift short story, The Woman in the Room. And yes, again, at this point, it's easy to draw another parallel between Johnny's life and King's. His mother dead, Johnny moves back to his childhood home with his father in Pownall, Maine. But fame follows him. He's inundated with letters from people pleading for his help to people telling him he's going to burn in hell. Some even showed up on his doorstep, having traveled the country so Johnny could see their future. This isn't a far cry from King's life in the mid-70s. People would show up unexpectedly at the author's house, and the letters started coming non-stop. Most communications seemed benign, fans wanting to interact or get an autograph from their favorite author, but there were also others who were asking for money, and even a percentage who believed King's horrific writings were the tool of Satan himself. In the end, King started to become worried for his and his family's safety, and rightly so. It was a little over a decade later, but in 1990, a man did break into his home and threaten his wife. But a slight difference between King and Smith is that Johnny never asked for fame. He never wanted to have psychic visions, and King pursued his course of a writer. And while he may have been concerned about his privacy and safety, he continued to write. He continued to do interviews and become more popular with each passing book. But both the real man and the fictional want and deserve their privacy. Johnny admits to reading some of the letters and touching some of the objects he was sent, but he never lets the sender know, returning the objects without comment. Likely, King too read at least some of the letters, enough to get a feel for the incoming feedback, even if he wished the letters would stop entirely. In these pages, King is certain to drive home Johnny is a good guy, with two capital Gs. He doesn't keep any of the items sent to him, no matter how valuable. He doesn't try to capitalize on his fame. When Richard Dees, a writer for the Inside View tabloid, Comes to Johnny's door making a very lucrative job offer where John doesn't even have to use his psychic powers. He can just make stuff up. Smith literally throws the man out of the house. These retaliates proclaiming Smith a phony in his magazine. And as an aside, this isn't King's last story involving that tabloid writer. But here, this John Smith wouldn't do anything wrong, would he? And at this point in the story, we are almost exactly at the novel's halfway mark. And it's here that the story changes. To that, I gotta say this book's pacing is a bit... odd. While I understand the standard way to break down literature is into a three-act structure, with the setup, the confrontation, and the resolution, that doesn't really seem to apply well to the Dead Zone. Even though King himself has broken this novel into three segments, but they're widely uneven, and it's four segments if you count the prologue. The first segment was called The Wheel of Fortune, and it encompassed the first 16 chapters of the book, two-thirds of the novel's length. I think to break down the Dead Zone into acts really requires four parts. The first part is almost exactly 25% of the book, the first half of the Wheel of Fortune section. In this quarter, we have the setup. John and Sarah are in love. The confrontation. Johnny goes into a coma, and the world goes on without him. The resolution? Johnny wakes up. Then we have the second quarter of the book. Here, too, King has all three acts. The setup, John is awake but injured badly, unable to walk, and exhibits psychic powers. The confrontation, his psychic powers are exhibited again and again in increasingly escalating manners. The resolution, John is released from the hospital and publicly exposed as a psychic. But now, halfway through the book, this pacing changes entirely. Though we're still in the Wheel of Fortune section of the novel, the entire book suddenly becomes a bit more episodic. Large stretches of time pass between some chapters. If I hadn't made detailed notes with months and years, it's at this point I'd have an almost impossible time knowing the span between events. And most all of these episodes that happen still follow that three-act structure. Some of these episodes are very brief. Others, they overstay their welcome. But I feel this novel almost becomes Dickensian in how the various short episodes combine to form a full novel. Each do stand alone, Were King writing the Dead Zone in parts for a weekly periodical, these portions would break apart nicely. Yet they do have a form and a purpose. While each one alone seems pretty similar, Johnny has a vision no one believes. Johnny is proved right. Johnny pays the price for being right. Combined, they do set a stage for the novel's eventual climax in that our hero, everyman John Smith, begins by refusing to heed his mother's words. He believes himself to be the Potter, He ignores the still, small voice when it comes. But through these experiences, he begins to give himself over to possibly being part of a grand plan or larger design. And I'll get to each of Johnny's adventures here, but as an aside, let me say that all these chapters have been interspersed with checkups on good old Greg Stilson. In 1975, the year Johnny wakes up, Stilson has risen to mayor of Ridgeway, New Hampshire, and he already has grander designs. In late 75, right about the time of Vera's death, Stilson begins a blackmail plan that's going to raise him the funds he needs to run as an independent for the U.S. House of Representatives. We see Stilson in a pattern of deceit and corruption. Aided by his goon, Sonny, Stilson coerces, bribes, blackmails, and threatens any who oppose him, from newspapers planning to run exposés to those that fund his accounts. Yeah, King doesn't let too long pass without us remembering Stilson is a bad guy And he's getting worse. And yet, that still has nothing to do with Johnny, who is undergoing adventures of his own. As I break this down, our first short episode is a drama, and it happens immediately after Johnny's encounter with Deez. It's the culmination of Johnny's relationship with Sarah that had been a driving force for half the novel. Much like he did with Stilson, King would every so often insert Sarah into the narrative, flashing to her life with her lawyer husband, Walt, Usually, this showed Sarah in some kind of conflict. She loves her husband, she loves her son, but Johnny waking up has brought a lot of conflicting emotions in her. But the final straw seems to be when Johnny makes the news with his press conference about his psychic powers and the fire. Walt immediately dismisses Johnny as a scammer trying to get some money, and that singular act pushes his wife away. Though Walt doesn't know it, as King writes, quote, "...suddenly her soul cried out for Johnny and the five years together of which they had been robbed." So, Sarah drops Johnny a note. Walt is away on some Republican Party business, and she's coming up to Maine to visit an old friend. She invites herself to visit Johnny, and he calls and issues a more formal invitation. While Sarah does bring her toddler son, Denny, who was barely a year old, when the boy goes to bed, so do Sarah and Johnny finally consummating their relationship almost five years to the day of Johnny's accident. This is a sweet moment, and I think King puts it in the novel to give our tragic hero one true moment of happiness. The rest of this book, Johnny is in some sort of struggle. Any piece he finds is broken apart. Truly, he becomes like Bill Bixby's David Banner in that Incredible Hulk 70s TV series. He has to travel from town to town running from reporters after each time he uses his power. But on this one afternoon with Sarah, he puts her and their past to bed. Even his encounter with little Denny brings John serenity. While holding the child, Johnny gets a psychic flash of simple contentment. King writes, quote, When the baby put his arm around Johnny's neck, a confused rush of feelings had washed over him like mild, warm water. There was nothing dark, nothing troubling. Everything was very simple. There was no concept of the future in the baby's thoughts, no feeling of trouble no sense of past unhappiness, and no words, only strong images, warmth, dryness, the mother, the man that was himself, End quote. And when the encounter was over, John reflects, quote, this afternoon she and I consummated a marriage that never was, and tonight he's playing with his grandson, he thought of the wheel of fortune, slowing, stopping, house number, everyone loses, End quote. The next episode of the Dead Zone novel is, to me, the most exciting story here. Johnny vs. the Castle Rock Strangler. As I mentioned, this mysterious psychopath was set up in two chapters while Johnny was out of the picture. Now it's time for that story to come to a head. In the Dead Zone television series, the Castle Rock story was the first adventure for the hero, and it encompassed the first two episodes of the first season. But in the Dead Zone book, it's the final pages of the Wheel of Fortune section. It lasts under 60 pages in the paperback version, less than 10% of the novel. Yet, it's a pivotal arc for Johnny, who until this point had avoided any public display of psychic powers. Though privately, he still had flashes from time to time. Some intentional, some not. But now Johnny receives a phone call from Castle Rock Sheriff George Bannerman. Johnny's former Dr. Wizak had called the sheriff. Aware of the Castle Rock killings that had been occurring for five years... Sam suggested Johnny may be able to help. A month later, with Bannerman having no leads and his constituency calling for an arrest, the sheriff decides it wouldn't hurt to call the psychic. But at any classical Campbellian hero's journey, in the story of Jesus himself, there is a moment where the protagonist refuses the call. Here, it happens quite literally, as Smith hangs up the phone and refuses to help. Johnny is haunted by this though, remembering his mother's statements about God's plan for him. Finally, he relents, and he calls Bannerman, offering to help. So that cold December of 1975, John Smith drives to Castle Rock, Maine, and we constant readers are first introduced to a fictional town that has become synonymous with King's stories. Yes, here, in the Dead Zone, is the first story King wrote featuring Castle Rock. It's a memorable encounter, with the killer perhaps being the single most exciting of John's adventures. But it's a very small portion of this book— And how could anyone have guessed at the time how important Castle Rock would become? Cujo, The Body, The Dark Half, Needful Things, and half a dozen other King tales happen in Castle Rock. And Rob Reiner, director of Stand By Me, even named his production company Castle Rock Entertainment. King got the town's name from William Golding's Lord of the Flies, in which it's the rocky part of the island where the boys are stranded. And King said he based this fictional city's geography on two real main towns, Durham and Libson Falls. It's perhaps the nexus of interconnected King stories. And make no mistake, the Dead Zone is connected to past as well as future stories. For example, the hospital where Vera Smith died was in Cumberland, described as being just north of Jerusalem's lot. And, by the way, Vera died the same year as King's Salem's lot was published. But in the Dead Zone, we don't spend a whole lot of time in Castle Rock, We visit the sheriff's office and the bandstand on the town common where a murder took place. But Castle Rock's full exploration lies ahead. In this book, it's merely a setting for this Strangler that Johnny must flesh out. Again, much like Herkos and the Boston Strangler. And I do love this section of the book. It's a short story whodunit that, standalone, could have been collected in Night Shift. In the larger scope, I find myself wishing this portion of the novel were actually longer. I'd have liked to see more interplay between Johnny and Bannerman and more twists to the investigation. Too often in this book, Johnny is a passive character. He lets things happen to him. It's really exciting to see him get up and go and investigate. And even though he doesn't get too big a hit off of the evidence that is stored in the sheriff's office, he demands going out to a place of one of the murders. He's not just using his powers, he's detecting. I truthfully think it's in these pages that I like Johnny best. But I do suppose a real psychic would make quick work of a murder investigation, and Johnny reveals the killer's identity immediately upon reaching the bandstand, the scene of a gruesome murder. The murderer himself is rather, wrote, a sexual deviant with a mother complex. Straight out of Hitchcock's Psycho, the killer's mother associated easy women with pain, leading her son to rape women as he strangled them, orgasming during their last breaths. I do enjoy a detail King adds, The killer doesn't discriminate, old women, young children, women in their prime. The killer is about violence, not attraction, so he goes after, rapes, and kills them all. As the killer's actual identity is truly inconsequential outside of this short story, I'm not going to spoil it here. Suffice it to say that, like any whodunit, it's the person no one expects and someone Johnny met while in Castle Rock. More interesting is that the sheriff refuses to believe Johnny. It takes more than psychic powers to convince Bannerman. Johnny has to use deductive reasoning and a keen sense of detecting in order to win the man over. When the killer is stopped, newspapers nationwide run with Johnny's story. And Johnny, who had gotten an offer to return to teaching at Cleves Mills High, finds himself toxic and unemployable. And, like David Banner, he must move to a new town and another adventure. John won't return to Castle Rock, but we constant readers will, And we'll see Sheriff Bannerman again, just a few books from now. But here, Johnny feels relieved that he has heeded the still, small voice. He stopped the murderer and believes his destiny done. Of course it's not. We still have a third of the book left. And this is when Section 2, The Laughing Tiger, begins. We jump forward to May of 1976, and Johnny is now living in Durham, New Hampshire. He's been hired as a private tutor for the reading challenge son of wealthy Roger Chatsworth. While it's one-on-one, Johnny is again teaching, and again out of the spotlight. He lives on the Chatworth estate, and helps teenage Chuck Chatsworth through the mental block that has stunted his literacy. But if the hunt for the Castle Rock Strangler happened at top speed, this section of the book slams on the brakes. Johnny's life remains relatively stable for over 100 pages, teaching and enjoying life with the Chatsworths. But King is using this period to finally, finally, tell the reader how Stilson relates to the story. Recall that Stilson was a New Hampshire mayor running to be one of that state's representatives in the U.S. House. It's while living in New Hampshire that Johnny first learns of Stilson when his employer is watching the man on television. Of course, throughout the book, Johnny has always turned conversation to current news and politics, King's way of reflecting the decade. But ever since Castle Rock, it seems Johnny has gotten, in my mind, a little bit creepy. He starts to intentionally use his powers with the intent of snooping in the minds of politicians during the 1976 presidential election. He shakes hands with Carter, Reagan, Morris Udall, and Henry Jackson. Indeed, King does reflect the decade well as I had to look up Udall to figure out why he mattered. Johnny gets very little from these encounters. Apparently, and I love this detail, most politicians are so practiced in being phony, Johnny's powers cannot penetrate their thoughts. He does have an encounter with Carter realizing the man will win the election, but that's the end of it. Yet Smith gets concerned when he sees Stilson on TV running for Congress. And, alright, let me tell you, I am so glad to be reviewing The Dead Zone now. I've read the book three times in the past year. I've lived with it in my thoughts as I've worked on this review. And there's one thing that is glaringly coincidental about this. It's impossible to not equate Greg Stilson with Donald Trump. Now, please understand, I am not getting political here, and I don't think of Trump as a backroom criminal who's going to blow up the world. So Trump supporters, please, don't take offense. But damn it, the parallels are so strong, I wonder if King himself had psychic powers. Let me go down the list. First, after a series of jobs as a rainmaker, Bible salesman, and a failed attempt at acting, Stilson finally found his calling when he became a real estate agent and insurer, Trump, of course, became famous for his real estate dealings. Both men have a history of womanizing. Trump was called a serial adulterer by Alabama's Republican Representative Mo Brooks. And while Stilson was single, we read stories of the women he'd bedded in the past as well. Both men were fairly inexperienced. Stilson had only been mayor for a few years, and Trump has never held public office. Both are outsiders with outrageous campaign tactics. Trump has changed the rules of debates, leveling some of the most personal insults I can think of between candidates in my lifetime. Stilson isn't much different. He runs up and down the stage acting like a bull, playing the role of a buffoon, but energizing the crowd and getting the press. Stilson, like Trump, runs as an outsider. Stumping, Stilson discusses throwing the corrupt and immoral politicians out. Like Trump, Stilson is an anti-establishment candidate, allowing voter frustration with the party establishment to fuel his campaign. Admittedly, Stilson is running as an independent, Or, as it's jokingly called, the hot dog party, as Stilson promises a hot dog for every man, woman, and child in America, a parody of a car in every garage. Trump has overtaken the Republican Party from within, though he has postulated running as an independent if the Republican National Committee doesn't give him the nomination. Then come the outrageously oversimplified promises. Trump proposes a big wall to stop illegal immigration. Stilson promises he's going to fix pollution by gathering it in hefty bags and launching them into space. Yes, he guarantees clean air and water in just six months. Likewise, Stilson promises cheap gas and oil, achieved through American might, used against, as he calls them, Arabs. Trump's foreign policy also seems to work through strength, and in February 2016, he has promised to cap gas prices at a dollar per gallon. Lastly, Both men believe they're destined for greatness. If you believe all the articles and interviews, Trump has at least an air of megalomania about him, if not more. And Stilson has his sights set on nothing less than becoming President of the United States, leader of the free world. So why do I bring all this up? Well, first, because I find it incredibly amusing. I mean, it's not one or two things, and I'm not stretching. It couldn't be much closer if Trump had picked this novel and taken it as his own political handbook. I'll actually believe that happened if Trump starts offering people hot dogs. But the other reason is because before 2015, Stilson's campaign seemed like an overwrought joke. The closest parallel, one that King himself made, was Jesse Ventura's run for governor of Minnesota. But now it's simply impossible not to see life imitating fiction, and that's shaping my view of reading The Dead Zone. Now King does take Stilson much, much further. Through Sonny Elliman, the New Hampshire politician has his own personal bodyguard assignment of bikers wielding pool cues as weapons. This is King calling back to how the Rolling Stones used Hell's Angels as bodyguards up until the disastrous and fatal Altamont Free Festival in 1969. And the method Stilson uses to keep his illegal dealings out of the spotlight could only be believable in an America still reeling from Watergate. I suppose that at a state level a politician could keep his dirty laundry secret, but as Stilson gains national attention, That feels like a stretch. But it's all a setup to tell us Stilson is a villain. He's a bad man amassing more and more power. Even his name, Stilson, according to author Douglas E. Winter, who has interviewed King, is a contraction of Still Nixon. His tactics seem like a combination between that disgraced U.S. president and Senator Joe McCarthy. King has said in many interviews he wanted Stilson to come off as an American Hitler. I'm not sure if I get that. At no point is Stilson threatening genocide or conquest. But yeah, he's not trustworthy, and he certainly has only his own best interests at heart. The public at large laugh him off as a buffoon. Roger Chatsworth tells Johnny that even if Greg wins, he'll serve for two years and be unable to win any re-election. But Johnny is disturbed by Stilson, and so he heads to one of Greg's rallies and shakes hands with one more politician. And what Johnny sees will set the course of the last quarter of the book. It's described as Johnny's most powerful vision of all. Johnny isn't sure when this happens, but years in the future. He first sees Stilson being sworn in as president, as I read at the opening of this show. The Chief Justice of the Supreme Court looking frightened by the new Commander-in-Chief. But what Johnny sees next, I want to read to you verbatim from King's novel. Quote, Now all of it began to disappear slowly behind that blue filter. Except it wasn't a filter. It was something real. It was, in the future, in the dead zone. Something in the future, his, Stilson's. Johnny didn't know. There was the sense of flying, flying through the blue, above scenes of utter desolation that could not quite be seen. And cutting through this came the disembodied voice of Greg Stilson, the voice of a cut-rate god or a comic opera engine of the dead. I'm gonna go through them like buckwheat through a goose. Gonna go through them like shit through a canebrake. The tiger, Johnny muttered thickly. The tiger's behind the blue, behind the yellow. Then all of it. Pictures, images, and words broke up in the swelling, soft roar of oblivion. He seemed to smell some sweet, coppery scent like burning high-tension wires. For a moment, that inner eye seemed to open even wider, searching. The blue and yellow that had obscured everything seemed about to solidify into... into something. And from somewhere inside, distant and full of terror, he heard a woman shriek, Give him to me, you bastard! Then it was gone. End quote. Now, I've already said in this book that Johnny's true destiny is to stop nuclear war. To stop Stilson from becoming president and being able to start that war. And in the Dead Zone movie and in the TV series, it's overt. Cronenberg shows us Martin Sheen's Stilson in a bunker launching the nukes. The TV show gives us CG visuals of Washington DC swept away in a horrific explosion. But King's book? He gives us what I just read to you. It has Stilson yelling, yeah, but Johnny can't see much. It's obscured by the yellow and blue floating stripes. So, is this Armageddon? I can't read it as such. After the vision ends, Johnny does reflect, quote, that sense of destruction. God, it had been everything, end quote. But it still doesn't say nuclear war. Much, much later in the book, Johnny writes, quote, If Stilson becomes president, he's going to worsen an international situation that's going to be pretty awful to begin with. If Stilson becomes president, he's going to end up precipitating a full-scale nuclear war. I believe that the initial flashpoint for this war is going to be in South Africa, and I also believe that in the short bloody course of this war, it's not just going to be two or three nations throwing warheads, but maybe as many as 20, plus terrorist groups. End quote. So, that's what Johnny believes. But what do we, the reader, believe? Is it enough to put us firmly on the side of a would-be assassin? Not that Johnny jumps to that conclusion. No. He starts to assemble plans, looking at ways he can change the future. He asks anyone who will listen the hypothetical time travel Hitler question. The idea of killing Stilson isn't even Johnny's, or at least Smith won't allow himself to think that. Instead, it comes from Chatsworth's Vietnamese gardener, No Fat, and that's spelled N-G-O-P-H-A-T. No is studying to be an American citizen, and his class takes a field trip to see Stilson. It's that trip that inspires Johnny's own arrival at the rally. And it's from No that this section, the Laughing Tiger, gets its name. In speaking of Stilson, No tells Johnny about a game children in his village played, called Yeah, the Laughing Tiger. It's somewhat like tag, only the it person wears an animal skin and runs from the other boys. That it child growls and claws, pretending to be a ferocious tiger, but all the while the boys are having fun, laughing. Before meeting Stilson, No thinks the politician is the child laughing inside while growling outside. A sheep in wolf's clothing, so to speak. After seeing Stilson's rally, however, Johnny thinks Stilson has gone further. Inside the beast is a man, but inside that man is another beast. When Johnny and No chat after the event, No says that Stilson must be stopped. And if he can't be stopped politically, then he should be shot. No thinks that's the American way. But Johnny is horrified at the thought. He thinks there's got to be another way. But in conversation, no planted a seed in Johnny's brain. But before that decision is made, King has one more adventure. After all, it's been over a hundred pages of politics and Stilson as a vague disaster at some point in the far, far future. And Johnny needs another event to help push him towards the fatal conclusion. After all, there's something else worth pointing out. The book, and I, have called John Smith a psychic, And that usually implies precognition. But there are many types of psychic phenomena, including telepathy, speaking to the dead, and so on. In the case of John Smith, there haven't, thus far, been too many instances of foresight. In the prologue, Johnny knew a man's car battery would explode. In the hospital, he tells a nurse her son's surgery will go well. He sees Jimmy Carter become president. And mostly, that's the extent of his fortune telling, and it's all rather mundane. Otherwise, He's been able to see the past, such as how the Castle Rock Strangler killed a victim, or how Dr. Wyzak's mother escaped Poland. He's also repeatedly seen the present, but far away, such as the physical therapist's house on fire. And he can read thoughts and moods, as he's done to Chuck Chatsworth many times while teaching him. And Johnny's put these powers to good use. He saved the house by calling the fire department. He stopped future killings by leading Bannerman to the Strangler but we haven't really seen any cases of Johnny changing the future. He seems to think he can. He doesn't even question if there's fate, destiny, or if anything will allow him to change the things he sees. But there's been nothing to prove it. That changes when the entire Chatsworth section of the book hits its head. It's now June of 1977. Johnny's father has remarried. Sarah has just had her new baby, about 18 months after her tryst with Johnny, so it's clearly Walt's child. Most importantly... Johnny successfully taught Chuck Chatsworth to read, and the boy is about to graduate high school and go off to Stovington Preparatory School in Vermont. Yes, the same school where Jack Torrance had been a teacher in The Shining. Chuck's entire graduating class is preparing for a graduation party at Kathy's Roadhouse, but when Johnny touches Chuck, he gets a vision. The Roadhouse is going to be struck by lightning, and an untold number of Chuck's friends are going to die. Yep, finally, 500 pages into the novel... That passage about the lightning rod salesman is going to pay off. Roger Chatsworth is a successful businessman and not one prone to flights of fancy, but he humors Johnny for Chuck's sake. They visit Kathy's, where the owner lies and says the building has lightning rods. Somehow, this barkeep remembers one customer from one afternoon four years earlier and uses that visit to put Roger's mind at ease. But Johnny persists, and for Chuck's sake... Roger agrees to hold a private party at his house for Chuck's friends. Not all the kids come, but many do. Sure enough, once again, Johnny is right. Lightning strikes the roadhouse. 81 students died, and 30 more were maimed or burned. Several of the parents are grateful to Johnny for saving their child's life, but at least one student blames him. Chuck's girlfriend claims Johnny set the fire with his mind, quote, Just like in that book, Carrie, end quote. Just we're clear, The Shining in Salem's Lot, happening in this reality, along with all the Castle Rock tales. But Carrie is a book, I think. But is it a fiction book? But here in the Dead Zone, again, cue the piano score, Johnny flees town to avoid the press. And again, the book's pacing becomes odd. The story begins to become epistolary, with letters to Johnny informing us readers that the psychic first moved to Florida, then to Phoenix. He blames himself for the dead, But both his father and George Chatsworth try to tell John to take credit for the living. And during this few pages, 18 months jump forward. A few political items are mentioned, including Greg Stilson's second term in the house. But we return to Johnny in late 1978. In that year and a half, the psychic had become obsessed with stopping Stilson. And in fact, in chapter 25, we're treated to several pages detailing Johnny's entire thought process. First... Experience, especially the Roadhouse Fire, has taught Johnny that no one believes his predictions until after they've already come true, so going public with his visions of Stilson would have no effect. But Johnny could have done more with Kathy's. He thinks he could have demolished the place himself, set a fire, or made it impossible for the party to take place. Of course, this all meant jail time for Johnny, but over 80 lives would have been saved and 30 more have a much higher quality of life. So John wonders how can he stop Stilson? He rules out legal means as being possibly ineffective and taking too long. And in these pages, Johnny comes to a conclusion that killing Stilson may be the only way to stop a nuclear war. As Johnny writes, quote, The stakes are enormous, so much so that I don't even dare let myself think about the big picture very often. It brings on a very bitch kitty of a headache every time. End quote. Now here's my general spoiler alert. The climax of this book needs some deconstructing. And due to the movie and this book's age, I'm going to assume you, constant listener, know how the dead zone ends. But if you don't, and if you don't want to be spoiled, hit stop now, and I look forward to your return after you've finished the book. For those of you still with us, now, Johnny feels he has years to make his choice, but his headaches keep getting worse, and finally, at the urging of Dr. Wizak, he sees a Phoenix doctor and discovers he has a fatal brain tumor. He could have an operation, but without it, he has about one year left to live. Now, this is told to us actually in the book's epilogue, or the third part. When reading the book from first page to last, all we know is something has occurred that tells Johnny he doesn't have any more time. He has to deal with this war now. He can no longer ignore the still, small voice. And so he decides he will kill Stilson. He knows it means the end of his own life, but with the tumor, he feels it's over anyway. Johnny could try surgery, but he feels the risks are too great. I mean, he could end up in a state where he couldn't ever stop the oncoming Armageddon. So Johnny buys a rifle, travels back to New Hampshire where Stilson was holding a town hall, and waits in the balcony. When Stilson gets on stage, Johnny fires and misses. Several times. Instead, Stilson's security guards shoot and kill John Smith. But remember the passage I just read with the floating blue and yellow stripes blocking Johnny's vision? It turns out those are the colors of a little boy's snowsuit. Stilson used the child as a human shield while Johnny is shooting. And though Smith never hits anyone, this act of cowardice ends Stilson's political career. As his dying act, Johnny reaches out and touches Stilson's ankle and sees that he did change the future. In Johnny's mind, God's will was done through him, as his mother had promised it would be. And that's where the story ends, if not the book. But before I get to that third section, which, again, it's a little more than an epilogue, I want to really analyze this ending. First, even King admits this climax is compromised. The entire premise of King's novel was, could I make a political assassin a hero? In order to do that, the person has to actually shoot someone? And here, Johnny sacrifices himself, but no one else is hurt. It's Stillson's own axe that undid him. Did King second-guess reader allegiance to Johnny after nearly 600 pages? No. King, the master of horror, was afraid of his intended ending. Yes, indeed. King, the author who wrote Rage about an active shooter in a classroom, and stood by that novel for well over a decade, he backed off. In an interview in the 80s, King discussed Stilson's pardon. He said, quote, A lot of me wanted him to kill that son of a bitch. And another part of me said, you don't want to do this, because if he kills Greg Stilson in the book, and ten years from now somebody knocks off President Anderson or President Carter, and they ask him, why did you do it? The guy says, I got the idea from Stephen King's novel, The Dead Zone. I would have to quietly pack my bags and move to Costa Rica. So I was ambivalent. A lot of me wanted to kill him and felt the ending was something of a cop-out. End quote. While this final plot twist does make this book more easily consumable, I'm not sure if a TV series would have been made about a successful assassin. But as it plays out, it makes Johnny look weak and incompetent. Now our protagonist isn't a Lee Harvey Oswald or a John Wilkes Booth like King envisioned. He's a Frank Eugene Quarter or a Lynette Frome or, at best, a John Hinckley. All people fading fast into obscurity after their failed attempts at presidential assassinations. King would return to this concept through his book 112263 a novel that recently enjoyed major success as an original series on Hulu. In that book, he takes the time travel concept seriously as a man goes back in time to stop Lee Harvey Oswald from killing Kennedy. It's going to be a while before we get to that book, but I look forward to discussing how King would write about political assassinations over 30 years after The Dead Zone. And please, don't construe my disappointment as me wanting to see any real-life assassinations— I do tend to think, had King gone with his original ending, then in 1981, it is very likely John Hinckley may have credited King's book for the inspiration, rather than Jodie Foster. Throughout history, banning and book burning have been the tools to implicate fiction. Be it a book, a movie, a song, or a video game, they get the blame for causing real-world violence. The Dead Zone would have been rife for that target. But it's far less dramatically satisfying to end the book as King does. The author succeeded, though. We are on Johnny's side. We believe his visions. His action is selfless, and it saves the world. Or does it? I mean, I thought it did for decades. Then I read King's on writing, and damn if he didn't put some doubt in my mind. He challenged what I thought I knew about the Dead Zone. In that writing guide, he stated, When Johnny shakes Greg Stilson's hand at a political rally, he has a vision of Stilson becoming the President of the United States and subsequently starting World War III. Johnny comes to the conclusion that the only way he can keep this from happening, the only way he can save the world, in other words, is by putting a bullet in Stilson's head. Johnny is different from other violent paranoid mystics in only one way. He really can see the future. Only, don't they all say that? End quote. Don't they all say that? Is King suggesting that Johnny isn't right? Now, I mentioned I read this book three times for this review. Four total. The third was to intentionally not fall for King's storytelling. What if I saw Johnny as the bad guy? What if, as Sarah briefly thought, the true face of Johnny was Hyde, not Jekyll? What do we know for facts? Well, we know Stilson isn't a good guy. He's underhanded, he's pandering, he's involved in backroom deeds. Basically, he's a politician. But he also kicked a dog to death, slapped a woman, and it's strongly implied he's even had FBI agents and others killed for investigating him. Even without the threat of nuclear war, Stilson may still deserve Johnny's bullet. Plus, Stilson has delusions of grandeur and headaches that give him uncontrollable fits of rage, and wait, wait a sec, Johnny also gets headaches during stressful situations. Sometimes Johnny snaps with anger, it's rare, but it happened when he threw Richard Dees out of his house. And delusions of grandeur? By the end of this book... Johnny has fully succumbed to his mother's line of thinking that he is an agent of God with a destiny to save mankind. So there are several uncomfortable parallels between our hero and his target. But let's go back to facts. One fact is that Smith was in a coma. Another that I think is indisputable fact is Johnny is truly psychic. The vision of Wyzak's mother, the house fire, the castle rock strangler, and the fire at Kathy's roadhouse all combined to pretty overwhelming proof that Smith had some form of ESP. But Smith also had a brain tumor, and those are known to influence personality as well as rational thought processes. Could they have impaired his vision or made him think he had a vision when he didn't? King points out in the novel that Charles Starkweather, the Texas Tower sniper, also had a brain tumor. And go back to that passage when I read Johnny's actual vision. He saw Stilson as president and he saw yellow and blue stripes. What we weren't shown in that vision is nuclear war. Later, Smith says he saw it, but did he? And the yellow and blue stripes he saw, that was the little kid's snowmobile outfit. So he was having a vision of what occurred when he pulled the trigger on Stilson. So was he seeing a vision of his own death? Was he seeing a vision of the future if Stilson was allowed to become president? Johnny dies, Stilson is disgraced, so we'll never know. But Johnny even admitted, if only to himself, that his obsession with politicians was that he was actively looking to find an evil one. After his encounter with the Strangler, Johnny wondered if he could see similar evil on a global scale. He was looking for someone who would cause Armageddon, and he said he found it in Stilson. That's fairly convenient. And just to, again, look at facts, he got the idea for this assassination from a Vietnamese citizen living in the United States. This was in 1976, just one year after the Vietnam War ended. We never know where no's political allegiances lie, but it could be read as a communist helping to plot the murder of an American politician. And Smith had a lot to be frustrated over. He lost five years of his life. He lost his girl. He lost his job. He'd been hounded by the press. There's no doubt that as the decade wore on, Smith had a reason to be disaffected, to be angry, to be disgruntled. Finally, King makes it a point to consistently show us Johnny as others see him. Sheriff Bannerman sees Johnny and thinks he must be near death. After Johnny passes out at Stillson's rally, the FBI agents who interrogate him think he looks like the textbook definition of an assassin, but he had no weapon. When Johnny buys the rifle, the shop owner doesn't trust the man because of his looks. Neither do many people who encounter him on his journey from Arizona to New Hampshire. And Johnny keeps binders full of Stillson's activity. That's an act familiar to any stalker or psycho. Meanwhile, King also does show us Stilson as the people see him. And they love him. He's effective at passing laws that protect his constituents. He was re-elected by a landslide. He regularly meets with New Hampshire residents to get their feedback and ideas. In the years since his first election to the House of Representatives, he seems to be a politician to the people, not a maniac. So maybe, just maybe, King's original mission wasn't to get us on the side of an assassin. Perhaps he was leading us down a trail to the point that we'd sympathize with the assassin's psychosis. Much like Lee Harvey Oswald's mother always proclaimed her son's innocence, maybe we were too close to the subject to see him as a crazy, would-be murderer. Yes, it's just possible, King, ever the prankster, like Johnny, pulled the biggest prank of all on us. Because for 37 years, The Dead Zone has been in print, nearly half that time since On Writing has been released, I haven't found too many people who even entertain the thought that Johnny is the bad apple in this book. After all, isn't he King's perennial nice guy? A last thought. It may be convenient to say King wouldn't make Johnny evil because, as I said earlier in this review, Smith is in many ways a fictionalized version of the author himself. Yes, perhaps. But I also want to remind you of my review of The Shining, which you can find in the archives at booksandnachos.com. In interviews about that book, King admitted abusive, murderous Jack Torrance is a version of himself, and the anger he would sometimes feel at his children. King would go there. What's the truth? That's up to the reader to decide. But hopefully I've at least enticed you to think about it differently, and maybe even revisit this book and read it with that critical thought. But it will be hard. King ends this book with section 3. It's only a few pages, which he titles, Notes from the Dead Zone. This section had me really thinking of Carrie, in that it's a series of letters and articles and transcripts from the testimony given at the Senate Stilson Committee after the assassination attempt. It's an epilogue to show what happened after Johnny's death, and it serves to take us all the way up to October 1979, nine years to the month from Johnny and Sarah's fateful date in that Wheel of Fortune. The book ends with Sarah visiting Johnny's grave, and standing there, she feels the presence of her old boyfriend. She doesn't see the assassin. For one last time, she says aloud, Same old Johnny. Did Johnny's power allow him to communicate from beyond the grave? Was it a ghost? Was it Sarah's imagination? Well, that's where the book ends. And so how do I rank King's first densely plotted novel? I'd say of the worst he'd released thus far at the time of this publication, it's my third favorite behind The Shining and the Stand. King's writing is as engaging as ever, and his adherence to plot and theme don't stop him from making realistic characters that feel three-dimensional. King may have robbed them of their self-determination that he claims his characters have, but the path the author sets them on feels natural. King said books that follow plot can feel artificial and labored. Neither of those terms apply to the Dead Zone. Though as a reflection of the 1970s, I think King could have done better. The commentary is almost wholly political, with only a couple token movie references to Star Wars and Dirty Harry and a few music name drops. A lot of the references feel forced, and yet the story is so plot-driven, King doesn't leave too much time to stop and reminisce. And King was still too close to the 70s to realize what would really epitomize it. There's no mention of disco or bell-bottoms, and yet some players like Sarge Shriver, who don't make lasting memories, get a mention or two. Of course, King finished writing this book in 1978 for 1979 publication, so he had to abandon his retrospective and instead write about things that would happen in his future. While some characters, like Sarah and the Lightning Rod Salesman, don't fully play out, in some ways I suppose that mirrors real life. This book spans 10 years and during that time people do tend to drift in and out of life. I wish the book felt more like a novel and less like a series of adventures. I think the passage of time should have been made a bit more clear and even. When King jumps the story 18 months, it feels like he's almost rushing to get to the end. And yet, when he spends a lot of time in a single place, as he does with Johnny at the Chatsworths, it feels a bit labored. But if my engagement is a solid metric of the book's success, well, I was glued to the page for most of it. I couldn't put it down, and I knew how it was going to end. I think it's an exemplary representation of King's output during this period, a time when the author was perhaps his most consistent and popular. It also follows many of King's stories where, liking Carrie, a person gets special powers and turns into a killer. However, literary critics weren't all as enthusiastic as I am. Once again, King failed to be taken seriously and reviews of the books were mixed. Yet if King was indeed going for entertainments with this novel, Looking at sales and audience engagement, not critical accolades, then he scored big. While all of King's books made it to the New York Times bestseller list, either in hardcover or paperback, The Dead Zone was his first number one bestseller, and 175,000 copies were sold in the first year. It was also a step towards King being the first author to have three titles on the Publisher Weekly list at the same time, with The Shining in paperback and Dead Zone and Firestarter on the hardcover charts. And it's important to put these sales figures in context. The Dead Zone was a number one book in mid-1979. Salem's Lot had not yet aired on television, and Kubrick's The Shining was nearly a year away. Outside of his novels, King was only known for De Palma's 1976 film Carrie. But The Shining and The Stand made him a popular name. He was often featured by the press, and his new publisher marketed the book well including promoting The Dead Zone with King's first major book tour visiting seven cities in six days. That success had to help soften the blow of The Long Walk's dismal sales the previous month. That book, printed in paperback, languished on shelves and was quickly made out of print. But King had other reasons to be happy than just sales. As I mentioned, one of the reasons he left Doubleday was dissatisfaction in the quality of their printed books. Well, New American Library sold the hardcover rights to Viking, and they printed 80,000 first edition copies, all referencing the Wheel of Fortune on the cover. King would say, quote, It's the best produced of all my works. The Dead Zone is really nicely put together. It's got nice cloth binding. It's just a nice product. End quote. And in my mind, is even more important for someone to be happy with the story, not just the binding. And King was pleased with this book. In the 80s, he called The Dead Zone his best novel, and even in the late 90s, he considered it in the top three. In 1983, he even named his radio station after it WZON. Conversely, Dead Zone had its detractors. I mentioned censorship and book burning. Well, according to the American Library Association, even with its cop-out ending, the Dead Zone was number 82 of the 100 most banned books of the 90s. Still controversial after more than a decade in print. Yet this story has survived in other media. In 1983, a movie version of The Dead Zone was released in theaters, directed by David Cronenberg. And if you go to our sister podcast, Now Playing, at nowplayingpodcast.com, you can find a review of that film in the archives. Stuart, Jacob, and I went in-depth on that movie and its differences from the book. The one thing I will call out, though, is that in every incarnation of The Dead Zone, what that term means differs. As I said, in this book... Johnny's dead zone is the damaged area of his brain where things are that he cannot see, like the street signs and the picnic table. In the Cronenberg film, though, in each of Johnny's visions, there's something he can't see. He calls that his dead zone. And Dr. Wizak determines that means Johnny has the power to change the future. King usually doesn't like it when movies alter his book, and Cronenberg's dead zone movie not only changes what the dead zone is, but many other aspects— including replacing the entire Lightning Strike story with one of a much younger boy who may fall through some ice. Yet despite those changes, that film does remain one of King's favorite adaptations of his work. He said in an interview that pro-producer Dino De Laurentiis reigned in Cronenberg's style, saying the director had a responsibility to the producer and the audience, not just to make a Cronenberg-only film. Though, if I can poke a little fun, King did confuse the movie and the book once in print. When talking about the dead zone in On Writing, King says he was nervous of making Johnny too much of a goody-goody. When Sarah offers to sleep with him, and Johnny replies he wants to wait until they're married. But, in King's novel, that didn't happen. Johnny was excited and ready to bed his girl. It was Christopher Walken's John Smith that wanted to wait for marriage. Though King did work on a draft of that screenplay, so maybe that's what he meant. The Dead Zone returned to screens, albeit the small screen, in 2002 as original programming for the USA Cable Network. It starred Anthony Michael Hall as John Smith, and I remember watching the show as it premiered. I was interested because I liked King's book and Cronenberg's film, but I was skeptical, despite his great turn in the Pirates of Silicon Valley. Could a Brat Packer really be heir to a Christopher Walken role? The series was created by Michael Piller and his son Sean Piller. Both had worked on various Star Trek series in the 80s and 90s, with Michael Piller even writing some of the best episodes of The Next Generation and being one of the creative impulses behind Deep Space Nine. It was Sean's idea to do the series, though, and as the rights had changed hands and were still held by people other than King, thanks to their sale with the 1983 film, the Pillars were able to proceed. And I'll give the show a lot of praise, especially in that first season. The Pillars succeeded in taking this book, which was already very episodic, and breaking it apart into actual television episodes. As I mentioned, the first two shows told the story of the Castle Rock Strangler. Later, there would be an episode about Johnny being rehired at his old school, only to lose the job when the board finds out about his psychic powers and the press that accompanies them. One episode detailed the lightning strike at Kathy's bar. If you really want to see this novel dramatized, it's there in the first season. And my doubt was baseless, Hall is actually a very convincing Johnny. I was wrong to think of him as the heir to Walken's performance. Hall goes back to the source material of a funny and jokey Johnny. I think it's much closer to King's vision. At least in the pre-accident stages. Hall is a very healthy and muscular guy, and whereas in the Dead Zone the book, Johnny continues to get weak and people think of him as close to death, in the TV series Johnny gets stronger after the accident. For a while, he walked with a cane, again, like Christopher Walken did in the movie. But a couple seasons in, it's basically an affectation, and eventually he just throws it away altogether. Beyond that, there were other changes made for television. Of course, as I mentioned earlier, the term Dead Zone had different meanings in every adaptation. For the TV series, the Dead Zone is an area of Johnny's brain that may cause his visions, like an actual lobe physically on his brain. According to the show... Most people have no activity in that portion, but due to Johnny's accident, his brain compensated for damage and this piece came to life. So it's implied to the series, as it is in the book, that all people have the capability for psychic powers, and Johnny's accident awakens his. It's that old, humans only use 10% of their brains, what does the other 90% do trope. But there are also more important character and story changes between the television series and the book. First, Sheriff George Bannerman and Sarah's husband, Walt Hazlitt, were combined into Sheriff Walt Bannerman, Sarah's husband. As Johnny would be working closely with the police week after week, solving crimes with his psychic powers, it created a lot of dramatic tension. Johnny still loves Sarah, Sarah's feelings for Johnny are complicated, and Walt is in the middle, married to one, working for the other. The pillars also added an interesting twist. Instead of not sleeping together, Johnny and Sarah share a night together before his accident. And the result is little Johnny Bannerman, Smith's son, being raised by Sarah and Walt. This forces the three principal characters to stay interacting with each other. Sarah's not allowed to just disappear from the series the way she does from this book. And there's lots of little jealousies as Sarah is happy with Walt, but still feels attachment to Johnny, and Johnny starts to date again, bringing up little pangs of jealousy in Sarah. Another change from the book is that Johnny's father is dead, and while in his coma, his mother dies also. But this Vera Smith, she was a very religious woman, but not insane. She became very close with Reverend Eugene Purdy, played by MASH's David Ogden Stiers. When Vera dies, her estate is left in the hands of Purdy and his Faith Heritage Foundation. And I love the addition of Purdy to this story. He brings a spiritual element and makes some of King's subtext overt. Several episodes are discussions of science versus faith. Johnny was a science teacher, Purdy a man of God. And the question repeatedly asked, is Johnny an agent of God? But Purdy is also in financial troubles, and he's hiding that he squandered much of Vera Smith's fortune. Johnny doesn't trust him fully, and it leads to great suspense as the seasons go on. All of this combined for an effective storytelling engine. But on the other side, the stories told with that engine were very formulaic. Each week, Johnny touched something, had a vision, then had to work to change the future. Critical people would ignore Johnny's visions and not believe in psychics, but at the very end of the episode, Johnny would save the day at the last minute. Not every episode followed this formula, but so many did as to become quite tiring. Those that didn't, however, are standouts. If you watch only one episode, I strongly recommend the 11th episode of Season 2 called Playing God, where Johnny's visions put him in a no-win scenario. The moral complexity made it perhaps the best show of the series, and it reunited Anthony Michael Hall with fellow Brat Packer Ally Sheedy. But in addition to the series being a bit rote, I also think they didn't do justice to all of the characters. Johnny's love interest in the first season is written off by Season 2... I also think they didn't do justice to Johnny's newly introduced sidekick, Bruce. Bruce was Johnny's physical trainer, and he ended up the Watson to Johnny's homes in many episodes. But he existed only as a sounding board, a way for Hall to speak aloud and communicate his thoughts to the audience. While early on he had a couple episodes devoted to his own arcs, his role in the series primarily ended up being, yeah, you have to listen to Johnny. The Bruce character was woefully underserved and eventually written out of the show altogether. Likewise, Johnny is given a new love interest in reporter Dana Bright, but she disappears after the first season, making one guest appearance a few years later. And by season six, even Walt Bannerman is ingloriously knocked off, presumably in my mind, to make way for Johnny and Sarah to finally have a romantic interlude. But of course, things get in the way of that too. But lastly, the series truly botched the Stilson storyline. The Pillars kept it in their back pocket, Each week during season one, I'd tune in and it would be another standalone episode. But in that first season finale, Johnny meets Greg Stilson, played by young Indiana Jones actor Sean Patrick Flannery. This Stilson is more a doppelganger for Johnny. They're about the same age, they're both deeply financially connected to Reverend Purdy, and the moment Johnny wakes up from his coma is the moment that Stilson is sworn in as mayor. It's like the danger Stilson brought is what actually awoke Johnny from the coma. That Stilson is his destiny. But with Stilson, the pillars attempt an X Files type of series. Most of the episodes are one off investigations, but Stilson was this version of the cigarette smoking man. When he showed up, we were watching mythology episodes that would progress that overarching story. But one fatal flaw of television series, and this really only changed recently, was the belief they were immortal. Stories weren't told so they could wrap up, they were told to keep the viewer coming back. So in the first few seasons of The Dead Zone, every time Stilson showed up, it was welcome. It was like a drop of water to a thirsty man. I wanted that story to keep going. I wanted to see Johnny make the choices that put him in that balcony with that gun. For a few years, the suspense about that was thick. But then the producers kept drawing it out. It eventually became that Johnny started conversing with a post-apocalyptic version of himself. He'd stop Armageddon, and then it would be restarted. Johnny himself may be somewhat to blame, or at least that's what the media says post-apocalypse. And if there's still a media around post-apocalypse, it's not at least a extinction-level event. But it really just started to become tedious and ridiculous. Then comes the ultimate irony a show about a psychic couldn't foresee its own cancellation. At the end of season six, the final season, though it wasn't intended to be, it was revealed Johnny's dad was alive and played by Tom Skerritt, who had played Sheriff Bannerman in the movie version of The Dead Zone. But here, Johnny's dad is suffering from dementia and being manipulated and kidnapped by Stilson, and that's where the show ends. There's no resolution. Pie-in-the-sky ideas about a TV movie to tie up plot threads floated for a year but never came to fruition. I mean, I think that it didn't take a psychic to know the ratings were low and the show's special effects made it costly to produce. But all six seasons are out on DVD, and honestly, it's enjoyable for the first three or four. Just don't get your hopes up for any major resolutions. Sadly, Michael Piller passed away during the Dead Zone's run, but his son Sean didn't leave King entirely. He went on to executive produce Haven, the TV series based on King's book, The Colorado Kid. And with that, I think it's time I wrap up this episode of Books and Nachos before USA Network cancels me too. But I'm excited to be back at Books and Nachos and really, really happy to be talking King once again. And we're going to be doing this all through the summer. In a few weeks, come back to BooksandNachos.com for my review of Firestarter, King's follow-up novel to The Dead Zone. It's my goal that this summer we're going to go through Firestarter, Roadwork, Cujo, The Running Man, and of course the novella collection, different seasons. And we're going to be doing King again at nowplayingpodcast.com too. Tomorrow, our review of Cujo will be released, and then next week, we go into the near future with Arnold Schwarzenegger and The Running Man. And if you enjoyed this show, please come to our forums and let me know what you thought of this book. You can also come to our new Facebook page. We just started it up this week. It's facebook.com forward slash Books and nachos. No ampersands. It's audience engagement that really fuels my excitement to be doing these podcasts, so please, let me know what you think. And lastly, just in case any of King's constant listeners happen to be going to see the man at the end of Watch Book Tour on June 11th in Nashville, I'm going to be in attendance. It's my first time seeing King speak live in person, and I couldn't be more excited about it. Tickets are sold out. They sold out in about two minutes. But if you happen to be going, drop me a line and hopefully we can say hi. So thank you again for listening. I really do appreciate it. I'll be back in a few weeks with Firestarter. And until then, don't forget to support your local bookstore.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. You can also find many more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. Books and Nachos is a crowdsourced podcast with no sponsors or ads. You could support our show by pledging to our Podbean campaign at booksandnachos.com slash support. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, provided by PodsafeAudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2016, all rights reserved. And no part of the show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media, Incorporated.
1: It's the Dark Sour. Dark Sour's theories. But for the plot King developed, Johnny needed to be sightly psychic. Sightly psychic. Why did I do that to myself? I have to give Jira a side eye. Jera. That's a good name for them, like Benifer Jera. When Richard Dees, a writer for the Inside View tabloid, comes to his door making a very lubricative king writing the later years before. (laughs)